0: One of the greatest challenges in life is to suffer from an ailment that people have chosen to take for granted. There exists a variety of diseases and other health issues that are so common that they are actually seen as natural or somehow to be expected and therefore not as motivating for medical research or empathy from others. They may be entirely life debilitating, but because they seem to be intractable and their solution not impending or media engaging, they become just taken for granted and people lose interest. Today, we're going to talk about one of these health issues. Migraines are a headache disorder that affects 15% of everyone in the entire world. Typically, these migraine headaches last from a few hours to three days and sometimes longer. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, and severe sensitivity to light, sound, and smell. While some folks can function during these episodes, the majority need to withdraw from society and hide from sensory stimulation and simply bear the pain until it passes astonishingly we still do not understand why humans have migraines at all if you want to learn about cannabis health business and technique efficiently and with good cheer i encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter we'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. Congratulations to listener Ophelia, who won the August giveaway from regenerative inputs company Everflux. Go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Dr. Russo has joined us before on Shaping Fire, episode 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms, and episodes 11 and 27 about his famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids, and of course, the Shaping Fire sessions on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel. Today, we're going to talk about treating migraines with cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Ethan.
1: Well, it's great to be here once again
0: thank you so let 's get right into talking about and getting a better understanding of what migraines are um, There's such a variety of them that when i 'm talking to patients and they 're explaining their symptoms to me, um, they can be all over the place, and yet somehow they all fit into this 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 basket you know of of called migraines. Um, what technically are migraines and and why does there seem to be such a variety of them
1: well uh Migraine is probably the most complex biochemical disorder that affects humans that we're aware of. Um, So it encompasses a lot of territory. I think everyone recognizes at the most basic level that it's a kind of headache. But in fact, there are forms of migraine with no headache at all, uh, just to make it all the more complicated. Uh, But this is a condition that often runs in families, but it's not strongly genetic. Um, So there are aspects of it that enter into uh, questions about it. Uh, Clearly, uh, families can be affected, but families often have similar environments, and that uh, can certainly affect the tendency towards this. But uh, migraine is most often recognized as a headache that is associated with a throbbing-type pain usually on one side of the head, in other words, unilateral, uh, also associated with some odd phenomena, it may or may not be associated with an aura. An aura is a warning that consists of a change in neurologic function, the most common of which is a visual disturbance that could include an actual field cut where you lose vision totally on one side, it's just a blank, it doesn't exist um, in the person's brain at that time. But also can include what is called scintillating scotomata. Uh, These are flashing lights or uh, sparkles or uh, lightning bolts Um, or it can include visual distortions like uh, things look like they're melting. Um so it's a very disturbing symptom, and that often uh presages a headache to follow somewhere between twenty and forty minutes later. Uh, but there's situations in which the aura occurs without the headache, and that's called a migraine equivalent. The other features of migraine that are quite commonly uh, present are association with nausea and vomiting. And two other phenomena that are called uh, photophobia and phonophobia. Photophobia is is literally fear of light. Phonophobia is fear of sound. And this is what leads people with a migraine to engage in hibernation behavior. What they're going to want to do is hide away in a dark, quiet room, try to get to sleep, and that often will stop the migraine if they can get to sleep. Um, So this has been an affliction of humans for as long as there's been recorded history, Uh, going back to the ancient Greeks, and obviously much before that, um, we probably don't have the writing for. Um, And uh, interestingly, for at least 1,200 years, there's been... uh, it 's been noted that cannabis uh, can be an effective treatment, so I suspect we'll get into that later so
0: with these different uh, types of manifestations, these different symptoms you know we 've got we 've got localized pain we 've got the the radiant type. Um, we 've got these auras that can that can warn us, and then uh, some include the 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 sharp stabbing ice pick kind. you know people have got different symptoms than other people, and then sometimes the same patient will have different symptoms from migraine to migraine, like they 'll say oh this is i 'm having a migraine, oh, I can tell it 's this kind." Um, mm-hmm. Do we have any explanation for why uh, migraines would show up with different symptoms in the same human?
1: Uh, no, not really. Um, you, you've made a distinction between what are called simple migraines, where there's the headache with the associated symptoms, and classic migraine, which would have the aura followed by the headache and associated symptoms. Um Uh, although some people tend to split these into different diagnoses they really are part of the same package Uh, uh, there's simmer similar pathophysiology which is to say the underlying basis and phenomena seem to be the same and clearly people with migraine tendencies over the course of a lifetime may manifest uh, different patterns Uh, so I Tend to be what's called a lumper and put them in a, a more single category.
0: So um, I I recognize that if these are you know I guess for this for the sake of this interview I'm going to be a lumper too. Um, so so if we're going to lump them together, is is the underlying mechanism for pain the same between the different types, or are they all going to be caused by uh, subtly different? Uh, mechanisms in the human body
1: Uh, the underlying biochemical effects seem to be held in common Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah I'm gonna say that uh, they're largely the same we should state at the outset that uh, this is not created by muscles pulling on the head what has been called in the past tension headache or muscle contraction headache uh, has very little objective evidence uh, to support it and in fact most headaches fall under a uh, more broader rubric of migraine Um, so what's involved is exceedingly complex Um, in terms of the pain it seems to be due to release of chemicals that excite the nerves. Um, and it may have its basis in a lower part of the brain, the brainstem, um, a part called substantia nigra, um, and uh, is involved to some degree, but uh, particularly in an area called the periaqueductal gray um, in the brainstem is... Um, is felt to be the so-called migraine generator so
0: um if if this is the generator um it starts there and then how these other how the the chemicals that it puts out um impacts different people in different ways so for so so it's taking what is essentially the same action but how our bodies uh, use those chemicals is based more on genetics. Is that a close understanding?
1: Ah, uh, boy, it'd be hard to say. Mm. What we can, what we can say, is that uh, there are chemical changes that sensitize, sensitize the nerves. Um, so phenomena that normally are not painful, such as the beating of the heart, stretching the blood vessels, creates a pounding pain. Uh, hopefully people don't have this all the time because it's very disturbing Uh, so it is the case that migraine is associated with both biochemical changes uh, that affect the nerves uh, but also changes in uh, blood vessels what are called vascular changes so in the old literature Uh, There were a lot of people that thought that this was more of a plumbing issue, that it had to do with um, uh, blood vessels being too big or too small. But in fact, those are more secondary changes um, that really are more related to the complex biochemical disturbance that's going on during a migraine.
0: Before we move forward, I want to jump back to something that you said in passing um, I believe that you said that um, the common there 's a common misperception that migraines are caused by i think you said the stretching of muscles um, <laughs> so is is this what you know it's not uncommon for me to hear from patients that they believe it's like the the fascia that is between the skin of their scalp and and their and the skull that there's some issue with the the the, the fascia that surrounds the the skull And, or, and, or some people will not, for example, pull their hair back into ponytails because they believe that that is irritating the fascia or, 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 you know, the musculature in some way of the, of the head. And that, you know, may be an onset to their migraines, uh, it, 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 was that comment meant to suggest that that this belief is a myth and and they might they might be related, but there's no actual scientific correlation?
1: Uh, what it says is this: um, people may note a variety of triggers. There's a difference between a trigger and a cause. Hmm. Okay, so pulling the hair back isn't a cause. It can be a trigger for some people because. One of the effects of migraine, as well as other clinical endocannabinoid deficiencies, is a supersensitization, the idea of having pain where it doesn't belong because the tissues look normal. Um, So many people with migraine may have uh, areas um, of spot tenderness uh, throughout the scalp or a face, Um, So even between headaches, they may have spots that when they're pressed are unusually uh, sensitive or painful. Uh, But there are many other triggers for migraines, too. Uh, For some people, it's certain foods uh, that may contain the amino acid tyramine uh, in strong cheese or red wine. Um, For other people, uh, exposure to flashing lights or overly bright sunshine. Uh, may act as a trigger. And so people with migraine often wear broad-brimmed hats and uh, polarized sunglasses to reduce glare, um, this kind of thing, or uh, exposure to excessive uh, noise. Um, Any of these things can act as a trigger to uh, migraine.
0: Let's tease out that trigger a little bit, because
1: um, one thing that I think that
0: patients have in common is is their particular set of environmental triggers so um, you know whether or not it's light or sound or strong smells or a, uh, or a food um, most patients have got the things that they tend to avoid because they can cause they, they can trigger the migraines for them um, uh, and especially like you know over over stimulation in any category um, are all of these doing one thing that um, that stimulates the area of the brain that you said you know most of the migraines come from? Are they are they, is there something going on with the stimulation and then the nervous system and then that begets the migraine? Is it that yeah. direct?
1: Uh, let's use an an analogy. Um, suppose we had uh, kids around a pool and they're taking buckets of water individually. Uh, So Johnny has a bucket and Sally has a bucket. Um, And uh, it really doesn't matter uh, whose bucket it was, but at a certain point, the pool overflows. Um, And with migraine, it may be a combination of one strong trigger and a couple of minor triggers, but in the end, uh, it happens. Um, And then, you know, there's a relationship to stress, but it isn't the way people think. If we're gonna make broad categorizations, it's often said that migraineurs, people with a susceptibility to migraine, often function really well under stress. Um, but they're very prone to what's called a holiday headache or weekend headache or a vacation headache. When the stress is over, that's when they'll get hit during the the, the downtime. Um, And it can similarly come from sleeping too long. Um, There are just countless factors. Um, And it is the case that people with migraine often benefit um, from keeping regular habits. In other words, uh, set bedtime and time to get up, uh, regular meals, not skipping meals, Uh, any of these things can contribute to the tendency to have an attack.
0: I can imagine that folks who experience migraines regularly are pretty unsatisfied with this answer based on the state <laughs> of the science. What, you know, the people like you who are actually doing the research, trying to know more, you know, what do you, you know, what do you all say over, oh. over coffee or beer? Like, cause this, this, it's, it's such a mess, right? How do you, what do yeah. you all discuss with each other about how you actually help people when, It's so varied.
1: Yeah. Well, to be honest, this uh, migraine was one of my favorite things to treat because I was interested in it. I thought that we had good things to offer people, and I always appreciated its complexity. But um, this is the reason that I saw new patients one an hour. Uh, Modern medicine doesn't give most practitioners that kind of luxury, um, but to go through this, to get an adequate history, addressing triggers, uh, addressing what migraine is about, and uh, prescribing a course of action that would include medicine, but also lifestyle adjustments, so uh, it takes a full hour, and that's after having previously spent spending time uh, going through the past medical history uh which hopefully was there in advance uh so prior records um yeah this is complex and it's not amenable to the the current 15 minute appointment
0: it's probably not very appropriate for you know, they've, they've got a hard job to do, but just your general physician, you know, your family physician that you go in, they're not going to have necessarily the, the depth nor the hour to give a patient. And so I can, I can see how people would be frustrated, um, in trying to find a solution. So before we move on to talking about, um, how migraines, um, uh, and endocannabinoid deficiency work together or, or don't, um, I wanted to hit on real quick, um, hormones as being a trigger because, you know, it's, (laughs) it's incredibly common for women who, you know, are, are, you know, three times more likely to experience migraines than men are that, that they will experience them, um, around their monthly cycle. And, And, you know, very often I'll I'll hear a a female patient, you know, curse her cycle and the hormones and the migraine in the same breath. Um, How are those related?
1: Uh, It's clearly the case that uh, hormones can be a trigger and the most common uh, association with migraine would be for them to occur perimenstrually. But in some women they could occur at the time of ovulation. Uh, So it's just another factor. In the past, uh, women were often told, well, you know, uh, when you go through menopause, these will stop, something to look forward to, ha-ha, from a uh, male physician. Uh, That is sometimes true, but not always true. And again, not something to look forward to. Um, uh, There are a lot of unknowns own factors here again we we mentioned genetics but um i've really come to believe that uh there's an important relationship to the endocannabinoid system uh that is similarly affected uh by diet and the microbiome in other words the bacteria in the gut um and uh that certainly could be a strong explanation for why uh, uh, it seems that migraine is more common on uh, some circles these days, uh, and there are relationships of migraine um, to uh, differences regionally that have to do with traditional lifestyles versus quote modern unquote lifestyles. Let's let's go ahead and and dig into
0: endocannabinoid deficiency right now. One of the things that I was uh, most attracted to your papers tying endocannabinoid deficiency and migraines together is that, you know, when, when explaining the endocannabinoid system to people, um, very often they say, well, you know, doing something, taking cannabis medicine to help my endocannabinoid system sounds like it's some kind of panacea. How can how can one herb help so many things? And, and what I generally explain to them is that, well, the endocannabinoid system is the body's homeostasis um, mechanism. And so if the endocannabinoid system is um, dysfunctional, well, each, each of the body's individual systems can start to um, become unstable and out of balance, and, and you can experience a host of, of challenges. In, in your papers, you talk about um, uh, patients who are experiencing a, uh, a low ca- endocannabinoid tone are more susceptible to migraines and then and then you kind of build on this platform. So so let's start there. Would you explain in detail what you mean by a patient's endocannabinoid tone and how you believe that is related to the propensity for them to have migraines?
1: Sure. Okay, so first of all, what's an endocannabinoid? These are endogenous cannabinoids, so these would be Um, substances that are similar to THC that naturally occur within our bodies. Um, These are of key importance in the brain in regulating the levels of neurotransmitters, the chemical messengers in the brain. Endocannabinoid tone is a function of several things simultaneously. So the amounts of the endocannabinoids, the... um, Number and activity of the receptor, CB1, where they work, and also the activity of the enzymes that make and break down the endocannabinoids. So, again, endocannabinoid tone is something that we refer to in the literature, but it's not something we can easily measure um, in patients Uh, The only way to do it directly is with a cerebral spinal fluid examination by a lumbar puncture or spinal tap, which is obviously an invasive procedure. Um, We're really at the beginning of being able to do brain imaging to try and assess uh, this kind of function. But um, clearly, we know very well at this point when endocannabinoid levels are low or endocannabinoid tone is diminished, um, then a number of things will occur. A uh, person who is affected in this manner um, is going to tend to have pain. Uh, they're going to tend to not sleep well. Uh, they're going to tend to be nauseated. And then there are a whole host of other things that can happen. But already, just would have mentioned, you see some commonality with the symptoms of migraine. Um, But it also would apply uh, to other disorders that seemingly are related, uh, such as fibromyalgia and irritable bowel. Um, And as I've heard you mention in other conversations, a lot of people end up with all three of these uh, conditions. Um, uh, Unfortunately, they can occur at the same time, uh, or people with a tendency towards one may manifest uh, the others at some point in their lives.
0: So I can imagine that some folks listening are like, "Well, I don't want endocannabinoid deficiency. Um, how does that happen?" And we've spoken before about you know how many different ways um, you know the, the the modern American life thing can give it to you from from poor sleep, poor nutrition, environmental toxins, uh, pharmaceuticals you may be taking, um, and then genetic predisposition. Uh, so so all of these you know, repress the body's creation of these, of these endogenous cannabinoids. Is it as simple? I mean, it's never as simple, but uh, (laughs) when, when, when the body's creation of endocannabinoids is repressed from these ways of living, um, are we thinking that it's the lack of these cannabinoids in the body that allows the balance in these systems to become erratic and therefore allows this pain to manifest as a migraine?
1: Uh, Quite possibly. Um, Clearly, I believe that. And um, some people uh, who have uh, investigated this type of thing uh, feel similarly. We have some direct evidence at this point. Um, When I wrote first um, uh, article length paper um, on clinical endocannabinoid deficiency in 2004 I proposed a study uh, which I knew couldn't be done in the United States on Uh, just wouldn't have gotten ethical approval and it was to examine the cerebrospinal fluid of migraine sufferers versus people who didn't have it and look for differences. Subsequently, in 2008, a group in Italy, Sarchielli et al. uh, did exactly that study and there was a tremendous difference in the level of anandamide, uh, one of the endocannabinoids, in in migraineurs versus control patients that didn't have headaches, so this is the first objective proof uh, of the importance of the endocannabinoid system in migraine, and the first uh, proof, again, if you will, of clinical endocannabinoid deficiency being at the root of the pathophysiology of migraine.
0: And, and I find it interesting that you know we'll talk to a, we'll talk more later about how how you know, using cannabis um, helps with migraines. There's the also the idea that even though we can't prove that endocannabinoid deficiency is the cause, the fact that adding cannabinoids makes it better seems to suggest that that's part of the problem as well. Is there a way that we can tease apart the difference um, between migraines that are caused by endocannabinoid deficiency versus migraines that are caused solely by um uh you know someone's genetic makeup i can imagine myself being a patient and going well i don't know if i'm just doomed because of my dna or if i should try cannabis medicine
1: well we can't uh name our parents uh you choose them um But uh, I'm convinced at this point that, yeah, you can have a genetic susceptibility, but uh, certainly there are things that people can do to lower their risk, uh, if not totally eliminate them, Um, right? So there is hope, (laughs) we should say that.
0: So, without us getting sidetracked and going too far uh, down the endocannabinoid deficiency path, um, I would like to talk a little bit about um, the threshold, right? So, when 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 patients are explaining to me um, their what they're looking for relief from, and uh, you know, I often will ask them, you know, what what kind of lifestyle that they've got. And, and for folks, they're like, okay, I recognize that these are the array of things, you know, poor sleep and, um, you know, environmental toxins and pharmaceuticals and things like that that can cause endocannabinoid deficiency, but how much is enough to cause the, the host of problems that come with endocannabinoid deficiency like migraines, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome? Like clearly it's probably not one night's poor sleep and it's probably not two nights poor sleep it's probably some amount of poor sleep and maybe some amount of environmental toxins and poor nutrition um is there any kind of guidance that you can offer for people to kind of figure out if they may be uh endocannabinoid deficient since there is no present test
1: well, uh, unfortunately, you'll find out when it's too late, but I would advise the migraine-sensitive individual not to go to a wine and cheese party and stay up all night. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be much more likely to have a hangover, let alone a migraine, uh, subsequently. So, um, But um, it's good to have an awareness of the triggers and try to avoid them, not combine them, uh, things of this sort. Um And then again, there are so many lifestyle um, pros that people can pursue that uh, would influence their tendency. And um, typically, when I saw a patient with migraine, we not only talked about drugs, we spent a lot of time talking about lifestyle. Uh, I recommended a low impact aerobic activity program for everyone, regular sleep habits. and these days, I also throw in a pitch for prebiotics and probiotics um, to try and uh, optimize uh, the microbiome uh, and this probably has a great deal to do with endocannabinoid tone and tendency to migraine as well as irritable bowel and a bunch of other conditions
0: you've said before on this program that um the the gut um plays a, a very significant role in uh, peace of mind uh perspective stress um and and so many other you know, afflictions and symptoms based on the gut biome for folks who are new to this idea that they're actually, you know, thinking with their stomach, would you give us a, a nice summary of it so that for, you know, the people can hear it, who need to hear it and, and research that continually on their own?
1: Sure. So, um, our gut, uh, the colon in particular, just filled with bacteria. Um, they're, there naturally, they have a great deal to do with our digestion, what gets absorbed, but also there is a gut-brain access. And so a lot of these bacteria make uh, neurotransmitters that get transported to the brain. Um, and increasingly we have evidence that they are related to endocannabinoid tone. On uh, just uh, on another subject, um, we've had this huge increase in the prevalence of autoimmune conditions, and it certainly may relate uh, to exactly the same thing, the microbiome, Um, and um, a lot of people with these conditions see improvement and sometimes the ability to uh, reduce or eliminate medicines uh, when they've gotten their microbiome more in balance. So when
0: you had patients in your office and you were suggesting for them to take probiotics i 'm curious what you recommended for them to actually physically go by. I mean many of us who are into regenerative cannabis cultivation we 're used to producing lactobacillus acid syndrome lab and and we know that that really helps our our gut in lots of ways, but you know your your, your regular patient who 's walking into your um, doctor 's office probably is not going to be immediately prepared to go out and make lab even though they really should. Um, Mm. What kind of recommendations did you make for patients to go buy off the shelf that, that might help them start out?
1: Sure. Well, just for context, I left practice in 2003, but for some years prior to that, I was recommending a book that I still recommend uh, called Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. Um, And it emphasized, emphasized a um, anti-inflammatory, diet um, that was rich in fermented foods. So this would be things like yogurt, kefir, um, lacto-fermented vegetables, um, and that remains part of it. But uh, these days, there are also supplements that are available. Um, and these uh, can be of two different types. So they're ones mainly based on lactobacilli. I don't recommend single agents, but it should be Um, one that uh, contains a variety of different ones hopefully with coded names that indicate that uh, they've been through clinical trials and they're also spore based uh, bacilli um, that seemingly uh, make it through the gut to the colon um, where they can sprout and live Uh, But additionally, it includes uh, feedstock for the bacteria that are called prebiotics. Um, And that would be foods um, in the aliaceae, so your onions, leeks, garlic. um, But additionally, um, fibers such as acacia fiber, burdock root, uh, marshmallow root, things of this sort. Um, but a lot of that uh, can be uh, gotten through a, a good, very diverse vegetable-based diet uh, with salad greens—not iceberg lettuce, but hmm. you know, more colored-type um, greens. Uh, things of this sort uh, can really go a long way to improving the microbiome.
0: So it sounds like where where we've gotten ourselves is that we we know that the migrainer, you know is experiencing migraines and that there could be this you know there's this this rainbow variety of potential causes but but when it comes down to okay we might not be able to point at to exactly the mechanism for what causes the migraine but we do know that um, intensity and commonality of the migraine is significantly decreased in most patients by getting regular and routine uh, sleep, um, eating a you know vegetable rich um, high probiotic diet, um, taking a probiotic supplement and avoiding triggers. Would that be a fair assessment? You bet. All right. So before we go to commercial, um, after the, after the commercial break, we'll start talking specifically about using cannabis to help, um, with migraines. Um, somebody I talked to about before the show said, you know, ask Dr. Russo if migraines can cause permanent damage, because when they're at their worst, when their migraine is making them feel like perhaps they'd rather be dead, they're, Additionally, afraid that that they're getting permanent damage from this experience as well. And and they wanted to know if if there was actually any threat from that.
1: Um, Yeah, not a tremendous amount. However, this is a very significant source of morbidity. Morbidity is a way of saying um, a burden of illness. People with migraine often lose a lot of time from work um, and can even be labeled unreliable, uh, particularly if it's a woman that might get hit with this every cycle. Um, And it's unwarranted, but uh, there's a danger there for sure. Um, There's a tremendous need to lower the frequency and severity of attacks so that this isn't going to impair the ability of somebody to do their best in their career um, but um, beyond that there are situations um, where there's such a strong depression of neural function um, in the aura um, that there could be associated strokes um, people with severe migraine may be uh, more susceptible to uh, a cumulative effects that would be deleterious later in life. But for the most part, it's a really severe headache with associated symptoms. But once it's gone and the person has had a chance to recover, they'll be okay. Um, But during an attack, yeah, people feel like they're going to die or they would want to die. Um, And it's serious. It's really serious. People with chronic migraine... Um, consider themselves more ill even than chronic diabetics. So that there's a very strong effect on uh, perception of wellness um, with great implications on lifestyle. Um, so a lot of people with severe migraine are very avoidant of certain kinds of activities and it can really detract uh, from enjoyment of life. Uh, so it 's a big deal, so uh, it 's not just a headache yeah uh, right there 's a lot more to it.
0: It reminds me a lot of panic attacks right until until you 've had a panic attack. Um, you know, most people are all like, yeah, you're, you're stressed out and anxious. I get it. But, but until you've had a panic attack, you don't realize that it's, um, a totally different color and flavor and category of its own. I, I find that to be very similar to migraines where, yeah, we, you know, most people experience a headache at you know, some point in their lives, but migraines is, is a category of its own with, a, with a you know, a much, uh, larger and more impactful set of, you know, Symptoms that we want relief from. I want to. I want to. So, so if if the vast majority of time, the migraine is not going to cause any kind of permanent damage, while being like you know an epic drag. you, You know, it's not going to cause physical damage except in the rare case where the person has a stroke. I know that there are listeners who picked up on that and they're going to be thinking about that little aspect a lot. And so is there anything that can be taken um, uh, during a migraine or you know, on your way up to a migraine that acts as a prophylactic to having a stroke during the migraine?
1: Well, not specifically. Um, however, in cases where – Uh, patient with migraine who presents with weakness on one side that looks like a stroke, Uh, my approach to that in the emergency room was was often uh, intravenous magnesium sulfate. Magnesium has a strong calming influence on the brain and uh, can abrogate, stop a a migraine attack, including uh, one of these complicated migraine uh, situations or hemiplegic migraine. Hemiplegic migraine is a weakness on one side associated with migraine that simulates uh, stroke. Um, but again, hopefully the vast majority of these are not going to culminate in permanent damage.
0: If you were using intravenous magnesium sulfate in the hospital, and that is not an option for most folks having a serious episode at home. Is it, is it at all called for to pick up over-the-counter magnesium sulfate tablets and to think about taking those orally? Or is it just a different mechanism and not the same?
1: Uh, no. Uh, close but no cigar in uh. this instance. Magnesium sulfate taken orally doesn't get absorbed and produces diarrhea. If someone wants to use something orally as a preventive for migraine, um, it needs to be what's called a chelated magnesium, that's C-H-E-L-A-T-E-D. And there's specific, I hesitate to do this, but there's a specific brand I will recommend called Amino-Mag, A-M-I-N-O-M-A-G, from Douglas Laboratories. Um, I had tremendous success with this in my practice um, in uh, using that as a preventive for migraine. Uh, Quite benign drug. Um, Only about 5% of people get diarrhea with it. Um, Usually the dosing was one uh, tablet three times a day, which could be reduced to twice a day if uh, it did produce any gut upset. Uh, but most forms of magnesium that you'll find anywhere, uh, magnesium citrate or magnesium sulfate, again are going to produce diarrhea and not be helpful.
0: Right on. I know that you're you're a- always very hesitant to you know recommend brands because that's that's not how you roll. But with the level of specificity we're looking to actually get people help, I, I appreciate you. Um, offering that anyway so uh let's go ahead and take our first short break and we'll be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher dr ethan russo for years organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. MOSS.com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit Moss. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build-A-Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the Build a Soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there, too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter, Blunt Branding, Marketing That Makes You Money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So during the break, uh, Ethan and I were talking about uh, the actual brain mechanics um, of the migraine, and, uh, and he rethought something that he said. And so, so Ethan, why don't you go ahead and make that clarification that you wanted to make?
1: Uh, Sure. I had mentioned uh, the importance of the substantia nigra in migraine pathophysiology, Um, and then I went on to describe the periaqueductal gray. It is the periaqueductal gray that's the migraine generator, and the substantia nigra probably doesn't enter into it in a big way. Uh, For some reason, I was uh, thinking of that. Maybe I had Parkinson's disease on my mind, Um, but uh, slight correction there.
0: Right on. That's probably for the hardcore people, you know, following at home. But you know, that's one of the reasons why we love to have you here, Ethan, is that um, you know, you your attention to detail is serious, and we know that we can get the real deal from you. So, so we we all appreciate that correction. So, so during this second set, we're going to talk um, m- less about. Um, the nature of migraines and more about the interaction of, uh, uh cannabinoids and migraines. And we're not really going to be talking as much about endocannabinoids anymore, which are the cannabinoids that the brain makes itself. And instead we're going to be talking about, uh, cannabinoids that are, uh, made outside of the body in the cannabis plant that we're going to, we're going to take, So you know, Ethan. One of the things that always shocks people is when they see these uh, classic historical bottles of medicine from you know the the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, and they say that they contain cannabis sativa, and they're they're so shocked that cannabis was prescribed in a huge part of the pharmacopeia until 1942 would you give us a little historical basis for doctors recommending cannabis for well a range of issues but in this case migraines
1: sure well we've got to go way back um i've spent decades uh trying to uh assess the literature on this and the oldest reference to cannabis for migraine that i've found uh dates back 1200 years Uh, to Persia, a physician named Sabur Ibn Sal. Um, And it was particularly interesting. Cannabis was one of a variety of ingredients, and it wasn't given uh, as a pill. It wasn't smoked. Rather, uh, the cannabis in this instance was instilled in the nose. Now, this is particularly telling for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, drugs that are absorbable through the nose tend to be pretty fast. Um, additionally, um, it's something you can do when someone's nauseated and vomiting. Uh, so one of the big problems with migraine is getting medicine in at the time, uh, and the intranasal route obviates the need for trying to give medicine by mouth. Um, so we can't say anything about how effective it was, but uh, this guy was quite influential at the time. Subsequently, in the region, um, there uh, were uh, cannabis was very influential in Islamic medicine, uh, and then uh, obviously nearby in India. Uh, so all of these cultures uh, noted uh, an association of cannabis for migraine. Then we fast forward um, to 1839, uh, and William B. O'Shaughnessy was an Irish physician who in the service of the British Crown went to India, uh, to Calcutta, currently Colcott, um and he was a real genuine scientist of first caliber. He um, studied what the Ayurvedic physicians were doing Uh, And noted uh, the use of of cannabis, which was different uh, to the cannabis that they had in Europe, which we think of as HAMP, low-level CBD. But this was high-powered THC-predominant cannabis. Um, So he took what he learned from the Ayurvedic physicians. He did experiments on animals and then gave it to people for a variety of conditions. About 1842, he took a trip back to England and lectured on this and was highly influential in the rapid spread uh, of cannabis-based medicine to uh, the British Empire, to the European continent, and to North America. So the next year, in 1843, a guy named Clendenning, Uh, started using cannabis to treat migraine in a series of patients with excellent results. And things just took off from there. If we examine the 19th century literature, there were dozens of articles about use of cannabis and migraine. And it was extremely interesting because uh, they didn't have MRI scans or CAT scans or EEGs or any of this technology. Um, But These physicians were excellent observers uh, and they noted two things. Um, We generally have a discrepancy between the kinds of drugs we use to treat migraine. There are two treatment approaches. There are symptomatic treatments that you take at the time and there are preventive treatments, uh, prophylactic treatments. Um, Often these are different drugs, but in the case of cannabis, it was noted that it worked in both contexts. So it could be used at the time to treat a migraine attack and certainly as a preventive. Um, And some of the fathers of neurology uh, were very prominent in recommending uh, cannabis for migraine. And these were giants, real intellects, and their observations have been very much borne uh, to, out to be true over time. Uh, so this really was a situation for about a century uh, that um, migraine was uh, one of the best treatments for migraine uh, was cannabis between 1840 and 1940. Even the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler, uh, said exactly that, that uh Cannabis was the best treatment. Uh, Then prohibition came into play. And for decades, we were in the dark about this uh, until things really began to pick up again in the 80s and 90s.
0: So I want to go back to two things that you said all the way back. Let's start with um, uh, taking cannabis uh, through the nose. Because uh, I thought I had heard it all, and I had not heard of using taking cannabis nasally. What was the preparation like that could be taken through the nose?
1: Well, I wish I could tell you exactly, but as best I could figure, it was probably raw cannabis, and it was probably THCA rather than THC. Uh, normally, we'd have to say that's interesting, but uh, THCA doesn't pass the blood-brain barrier. However... In migraine, it is well known that there's a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, and it may be a situation where that uh, is able to get in. Uh, So it probably was some kind of aqueous solution uh, of cannabis herb Um, and, um, you know, to complicate things and to be fair. This was part of a multiple herb combination, and so its relative role would be an extremely difficult thing to assess. But again, in the Middle East, um, subsequently, it's quite clear that hashish, uh, in particular, was used uh, to treat headaches.
0: That's interesting. So so for, for You know, everybody who's listening who works with patients and is trying to create medicine, the idea of something being delivered nasally is exciting because, you know, we've, you know, we know, you know, smoking and oral capsules and <laughs> tinctures and rectally and, you know, everything that we've done to help patients that have got different issues. But the nose is new, so uh, yeah, you know
1: it... I wouldn't really recommend it though currently all right, that's what I'm looking but... for is, that, is
0: is this a path that we need should consider?
1: yeah, I don't think so. uh again, a little complicated, but usually we're going to be talking about high potency preparations uh as people know very well this either has to be an alcohol or an oil, and you don't want that stuff in your nose uh it really could cause damage. Um uh, so I really bite the historical precedent with a very different preparation. This is not something i'd recommend all right put, um, put, shoving ha- shoving hash harsh.
0: up our nose is not what's called for
1: <laughs> no I, I think the closest uh corollary to this would be um something that is uh, administered sublingually or oromucosally. in other words. Uh, tear or, or oil base that's held in the mouth, uh trying to get some uh absorption through the the um mucous membranes there and then it could be swallowed. There's always going to be some combination of absorption locally and then uh through the gut. Um but I, I really would stay away from the nose. All
0: right. And and while we are uh asking uh, fun questions you know in these these old bottles of cannabis sativa that we 've seen you know traveling in the cannabis museum and such um, you know it 's really interesting to look at the ingredients because the main ingredient is often cannabis sativa, but then they often also have cocaine and morphine in them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great for a laugh, but, um, you know, for a moment of actuality, is, is there a reason that you're aware of of why they would put together cannabis, cocaine and morphine together? Is there while they're, you know, certainly abusable drugs, the co- cocaine and the morphine? Is there is there some interplay between the three that makes them very effective?
1: Well, it sure could be. Um, normally, we don't recommend opioids for migraine. Um but it it is true that uh there were a lot of these combination drugs there's one I, I like to show in lectures uh that combined cannabis uh with uh morphine um and uh extract of of capsicum meaning capsaicin uh hot stuff and chili peppers and these are three vegetable origin items that uh Play on the endogenous pain systems in our body um so it points out why plants are medicine for humans um you know these are natural substances from uh plants that uh happen to be closely aligned and similar to an endogenous chemicals in our bodies. Um, So it's a fascinating phenomenon and one I always like to throw in the face of skeptics who think that uh, drugs can only be synthetic in capsules.
0: Good. Well, we are big on the whole plant medicine here. So, uh, that, that opinion is popular here. So let's, let's circle back around now to you. Um, you had started down the path of, of, of teasing out the differences between symptomatic treatment, meaning, you know, treatment for the things that are happening in your body that you want relief from and then, also, secondarily, prophylactic, meaning you 're less likely to get a migraine in the future. now, the symptoms that we 've talked about so far, photosensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, body discomfort, cloudy thinking, things like this i 'm um, curious if if these um all are looking at the same uh, uh, modes of use for cannabis for, for their, for their relief. So are you suggesting, you know, like, like, for example, when we did the Parkinson show, um, you know, we spoke a lot about using uh, full extract ethanol, um, Uh, oil uh, and also tinctures because they they built up the cannabinoids in the system they lasted longer and you don't often get the attributed high uh, that you get from smoking so for parkinson's patients tinctures are fantastic um now for migraine folks um is there a particular method that is most called for? I mean, the the old literature often refers to smoking of cannabis, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was the best. It just means that that's what's in the old literature.
1: Sure. Uh, well, where speed is necessary, uh, there's no doubt that inhalation is going to be the most expedient method, but... I would amend that to say that it should be by vaporization rather than smoking for all the uh, obvious reasons Uh, so where speed is of the essence if someone has an aura um, and you know they're really in a situation where they can't have a crash and burn migraine that's going to take them out of the action for the rest of the day um, then uh, vaporization is really going to be the quickest although um, tincture in the mouth uh, may really do the trick as well um, you yeah. know I believe we've talked about before suppositories and I'm really skeptical about them um, how applicable they really are um, But, you know, again, we make a distinction. If someone is having regular severe migraines, it really is a context in which prophylaxis prevention uh, should be at the top of the agenda.
0: Yeah, usually we're recommending um, suppositories for somebody who's got, you know, a gut issue or they can't keep stuff down. And Mm -hmm. um uh so so perhaps the, the only people who would be having a hard time keeping the tincture down are folks with migraines with the associated nausea. Because, you know, I can imagine that they may not want to put, you know, um high proof ethanol into their gut. It may it may trigger a whole, you know, second wave of 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 issues. You know, back in you know, in the old school days, you know, we know that they were using cannabis that had THC, but we don't know um what other cannabinoids may have been present. And so um, what are, you know, and these studies don't, you know, we don't have a lot of research on this. And so, uh-huh. whereas our earlier example was THCA, so cannabis that has not been decarboxylated yet. And so it's still in its acid form, but now we're talking about vaporization or, or, you know, uh, Inhalation from, you know, combustion or something. We're talking about THC, the non-acid form, the converted form at that point. Um, and and we also know nowadays, because we've got the analytics, that when you are, you know, using a melange of cannabinoids, THC, CBG, CBD, maybe CBN, and maybe even some of the acids mixed together, that when you've got this, this wider range of entourage effect, all of these cannabinoids work together, you know, in a way that's more powerful than any one of them on their own. So, so this platform is all to ask you the question, do we know which cannabinoids we both, we best want to target at this point?
1: I wish I had a definitive answer. We know that THC works. Uh, quite effectively. And again, historically, that is what people used. Um, uh, I think CBD on its own probably is not going to be adequate. Uh, That's what we hear from people. Uh, The combination is always good. Um, If nothing else, uh, we can point to the ability of CBD to allay THC associated side effects. Um, and I do think in the long term, that CBD is probably helpful in preventive regimens. Um, as to the others, um, I think what you said is very true that, uh, the, um, having a more complete, uh, profile on entourage of substances is likely, uh, helpful in this situation, but we don't have a lot of evidence at this point, um, to say that that's, definitively the case
0: so let's let's dig a little bit more into uh method as well so um uh, you said vaporization is uh preferred for the obvious reasons and and for the folks who are new to this um i'm i'm we'll guess that you are talking because a inhalation of hot Uh, smoke is not the best for the lungs and irritates the cilia and, and vaporization is generally going to release the cannabinoid compounds in the cannabis in a way that's not scalding to the lungs. Is, is that the point you were making? Sure. Okay. So, so, so if that's, if that's true um, would you recommend more vaporization from an extracted oil in a vape pen or directly from the flower because you know as far as medicine goes they are subtly different substances
1: sure uh yeah I, i really prefer flour in this instance most vape pens are going to be solvent derived usually at the expense of a full terpenoid profile so we've got high thc preparations usually pretty devoid of anything else. Um, So, um, and again, um, the idea in this kind of treatment is not to render the person extra galactic. Uh, In other words, low doses are probably adequate. Um, In this instance, uh, vaporization should be to the point of symptom reduction. So, if the pain is less if the nausea is less um uh, clearly that's a signal that uh hopefully that's enough uh, and then again just coupling that with the usual behaviors of hiding away in a dark quiet place and trying to get to sleep hopefully things are going to be a lot better on the other side
0: so good i like i like that clarification you made because essentially we're we're not talking about oh, getting high from cannabis will help your migraines. Um, It's actually the, hey, introducing cannabinoids through vaporization in small doses can help. And then if you keep smoking, you're likely to get high. So really what we're talking about is microdosing vaped flower.
1: Ideally, but again, um, compared to the crash and burn experience of a full-blown migraine, I'm not saying that – that getting high is uh, a problem, um, but as in any condition, uh, the lowest dose that takes care of the symptoms is probably appropriate, and it's not usually necessary uh, to go beyond that
0: yeah that's a good that's a good clarification because you know certainly um, you know if if the goal is to uh, you know I guess dissociate and go into a dark place and kind of Hold your brain together until it passes. Um, there's a lot of patients who enjoy taking a large doses, a large dose of cannabis, so that they can more fully check out. And you know, while while the dose that they may have needed to, you know, get started with addressing their symptoms may be a small amount, the amount that they need to get to the point that it's working may actually be more. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is part of the beauty of cannabis and individualized medicine. You know, the, the episode today is to get people thinking about how to do this, but really the determination of how much and in what way to use it is really going to be up to the patient who should start with low dosages and, and a familiar way to take it. And then, and then, you know, explore from that point. Sure. So, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say that, uh, again, to deal with the other aspect of treatment, the the preventive treatment, it is always going to be preferable in that instance to go for an oral route of administration. So if someone has migraines that are frequent and severe enough to warrant daily um, preventive medication... Uh, that should be taken in a form that's going to produce the least likelihood of side effects. And so this would be low doses um, of an agent that would, say, be taken twice a day uh, as a preventive, um, and hopefully with no uh, great risk of intoxication that's going to interfere with the ability to function optimally. So with
0: taking a modern oral cannabis preparation, you know, we we can get a lot more specific than we just did with the, you know, in the moment you need relief right now so that you're going to have a, a puff of a vaporizer or a, uh, you know, or a joint or something. You're going to puff something because it immediately gets into the blood. Whereas as a prophylactic, you're going to take uh, a tincture or similar so that, you know, it's just present in your blood so that you don't get it to begin with. That's the kind of product that's a lot easier to know what your dosage is versus smoking where it's, or vaporizing, where it's very difficult to know the dosage. So, with that in mind, um, what dosage would you recommend um, twice a day as prophylactic care for a migraine?
1: Sure. So I begin very slowly. Um, What I always say in this kind of situation is, look, you have a chronic condition. We want you to get better, but we should do so slowly. Uh, So there's a premium on avoiding um, side effects, a premium on getting this to work in a way that isn't going to create problems of its own. I would start very low, um, 2.5 milligrams of THC or even less something that um, hopefully isn't going to produce any level of intoxication um, and then proceed upwards Um, you know again we want to use the least amount on a regular basis that's going to reduce the frequency and severity of migraine attacks Uh, so to start it might be 2.5 milligrams of THC equivalent twice a day Uh, less even if someone's really sensitive Um, and then I'd proceed upwards only as needed Um, for some people that small amount may be sufficient Uh, for some it'll be five twice a day Um, uh, once it's uh, generally speaking I like to avoid going higher uh, in preventive situations trying to see if uh, limiting limiting it to 15 milligrams of THC equivalent a day. um, Exceptionally, it could be 30 milligrams, but beyond that, there's a high likelihood that additional medicine isn't really going to uh, be a lot more effective and certainly will add to the likelihood of getting associated side effects.
0: And you know, as as one of the you know the forefathers of the entourage effect, it's probably important to point out that um, you know we're not really talking about 2.5 milligrams of THC isolate if it can be avoided. What what you're referring to is is THC in the presence of the the rest of the you know minor cannabinoids and flavonoids and and all the other um, you know. Uh, components of the resin, because while we do not understand the full science yet, um, the resin, you know, complete and not reduced to just THC isolate seems to work best with the body, correct?
1: That is my contention.
0: Right on. So, um, So let's talk a little bit about on the prophylactic side, you know, we understand that when we inhale... The uh, when we inhale cannabis to deal with our symptoms, that happens pretty darn fast. Um, when we are talking a pro prophylactic, the the you know, the decrease the likelihood of a migraine. You know, Going all the way back to Osler, who you re- mentioned earlier in 1915, says to expect the treatment to be long term. This isn't a fast thing. Can you set some kind of expectation that if a, if a migraineur was to add you know, 2.5 to 5 milligrams of whole plant tincture to their daily regimen twice a day, what kind of results might they see over time?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked. So, uh, if we're talking about medicines for migraine in general, um I I would use the <clears throat> excuse me, the 70% rule that a lot of things are going to work in 70% of patients. Uh, and it may be that the first two or three things don't work and the fourth will. Uh, however, um once you start getting into multiple attempts, Uh, the likelihood is that you're always still gonna have a hardcore 30% of patients that don't respond. I would take that 30% of resistant patients and say that cannabis, um, used the way we've been discussing, is gonna work in 70 to 80% of them. Um, So I think it is uh, quite likely more effective than conventional medicines. Uh, in the situation and, and seems to work where other things don't. Um, so I think there's a very high likelihood. But again, I, in this context, I didn't like to do things in isolation. Uh, every patient was reminded of the lifestyle factors that we discussed earlier. And I think they should all be done at once. Uh, if someone's a, a lot better down the road and wants to taper off, of the preventive cannabis, that's great, uh, and that would be a goal of treatment. But um, I'd never say start with cannabis uh, without pursuing the lifestyle adjustments.
0: Okay, so if someone, um, let's say that someone does start with cannabis tincture, though, uh, do you think that if they're taking it? Um, you know, twice a day, as we've already discussed, that they may start experiencing a reduction in migraines after the first week? Or is that too fast to expect it?
1: Um, No, it it could well be. Um, The beauty of this is people find out uh, whether they're successful or not. Um, uh, But, um, you know, again, it's a tough thing to to try to judge, uh, you know, uh, am I taking the right dose? You won't know until or unless the next attack occurs. But um, uh, again, I would resist the urge to elevate the dose uh, before a person has to. Um, But in in the olden days, um, again, people were sent out with similar kinds of instructions on titrating the dose upwards as needed. Um, but ideally it's great to check in, um, every week or two, um, to see if a dosage adjustment is necessary, but, uh, many patients figure this out on their own.
0: This is probably a good place for us to, uh, plug your, um, the, the shaping fire sessions series, uh, that we did with you. That's on the shaping fire YouTube channel. One of the, uh, topics that we discussed was keeping a patient journal when interacting and trying cannabis uh for the first time because you know um at, when you're self titrating you're you're often changing your dosage and your set and setting meaning you know the mood you're in and where you are and who you're with and um and and then of course you're going to get different uh physiological benefits Based on those two, and so um, you 've recommended it in the past that folks write this down because over the course of even just two weeks if you 're taking it twice a day and you are having some variability to your dosing it 's so easy to forget right yeah so um, so I think the last thing I want to get on the on the prophylactic aspect is you know some people are they they'll start cannabis and then they'll have a migraine and they'll go you know they'll be like damn it didn't work and then they'll stop and and I and I and I'm I'm always quick to remind people that um you know nowhere in the literature does it necessarily say that you're going to go from migraines to zero migraines after, you know, a week or two of cannabis usage that, you know, people are heralding huge success with the reduction of the number of migraines. So can you, can you speak to the importance of not seeing the solution as being like a hundred percent or zero black or white?
1: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the better is defined as fewer and less severe attacks. It, everyone would desire the Holy Grail of total absence of attacks, and that certainly happens with cannabis-based treatment. But um, it's not a reasonable thing to expect straight out of the chute. We all hope that that will be the uh, The history that eventuates, but uh, can't promise that. Um, So, yeah, we want there to be fewer, less severe attacks. That's a goal of treatment. That's fantastic.
0: All right. So, when we come back, we are going to talk about um, uh, blending uh, cannabis use with psilocybin mushroom use towards this end of reducing the intensity and regularity of your migraines, So stick with us. Uh, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher Dr. Ethan Russo. For many, transitioning to organic gardening can be overwhelming. There's so much to learn about soil biology and fermentation. BioFlux fermented plant boost from EverFlux simplifies organic farming so you can start growing organically today. Invented by a California farmer growing organic for 40 years, BioFlux is a fermented natural farming preparation for those who want a natural micro booster without having to brew their own. This extraordinary chemical-free growth and terpene enhancer improves root development, accelerates the conversion of organic matter into humus, increases nutrient use efficiency and uptake, and increases beneficial microbe activity. In addition to the BioFlux fermented plant booster, EverFlux also makes an activated biochar called TeraFlux that is infused with the BioFlux plant booster. Imagine combining the buffering and rhizosphere-enhancing qualities of biochar infused with a range of earthworm castings, insect frass, kelp and crab meal, oyster shell, and other ingredients. I'm using terraflux infused biochar this summer myself, and it smells alive, rich, and potent. These products have been scientifically proven to match yields and increase flower quality and pest resistance when compared to traditional NPK inputs. If you are looking for reliable organic fertilizers that will free you up to focus on other aspects of your garden, consider using the range of all-natural regenerative fertilizers and natural biostimulants from Everflux. Find out more at everfluxtechnologies.com or by following their Instagram at Everflux. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynomyco by its original name, DynaMic. Now, Dynomyco is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamico at dynamico.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the Soil Food Web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system. And even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, shangolos, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So, Ethan, you know, one of the things that I find most, um, you know, interesting about How we're starting to handle migraines now is the increased availability of uh, medicinal psilocybin rich mushrooms. And the common and commonality of people doing micro dosing, um, for a, for a range of neurological issues, including like we've talked about, about on, uh, episode 22, um, using, um, mushrooms and cannabis together to help, uh, heal traumatic brain injury and lay down new neural pathways. And so, so you know there's not a lot of research that's been done at this point on on mushrooms and migraines because it's a controlled substance but there's a whole lot of anecdotal evidence that psilocybin mushrooms help with the relief and to decrease the likelihood of them um, what is the state of the science for what the in, the interaction between psilocybin, the naturally occurring molecule in mushrooms and um, the, on migraines
1: well again, uh, I think it 's helpful to put this in context historically. Um, it has been known for centuries that substances that are psychedelic or hallucinogenic at high dose can be used at low doses to, to treat migraine. Um, so, I mean, probably easiest way uh, to think about it is in terms of looking at the work of Albert Hoffmann, uh who developed LSD. He actually worked for the Sandoz um, company in Switzerland, on a series of drugs that were ergot derivatives. Ergot is a rye fungus. Uh, It's been used medicinally for centuries, but they were using natural compounds and semi-synthetics from ergot to treat migraine, both acutely and preventively. Um, And one of the substances he developed was LSD, which everyone knows about. Um, uh, so back in the nineties, when I was really getting into, um, plant-based medicine and alternative treatments, um, I actually, my study of migraine began with forbidden drugs, um, and, uh, gradually got into cannabis more specifically. Um, but again, historically peyote, um, the source of mescaline uh, spent a short period of time as a prescription medicine in the United States to treat migraine. Uh, So what LSD, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and peyote have in common is they're all tryptamine uh, type uh, psychedelics. Uh, So they have a common mechanism of action seemingly that relates as best we know to the um, serotonin uh, type 2A receptor. But what's funny there is we, th- we know it works on this receptor, but why does it seemingly have this persistent effect? We usually think of medicines for migraine um, to have benefit for a few hours or for one attack. Um, but what's different with the psychedelics is in some individuals, hopefully often, even a low dose of these substances seems to give a long break uh, to the migraine susceptibility. Um, and it's even more pronounced in the instance of cluster headaches. Cluster headaches are distinct from migraine, although um, they may have drugs in common that help them. but. Um, uh, clusters are extremely severe and debilitating and it uh, frequently is the case that someone uses a a, uh, very low dose of a psychedelic and has a long-term remission from cluster headache attacks Uh, to some extent the same thing can happen with migraine But clearly it's the case that these types of substances uh, can be very effective preventives, even if taken in extremely low doses on a more regular basis. Uh, In fact, I can brag at this point um, that I wrote to Albert Hoffman back in the 90s and got a handwritten letter uh, from him endorsing um, my... um, proposal that uh super low doses of LSD uh be taken preventively uh, as a migraine treatment. Uh so clearly was related to the kind of work he was doing. Um I uh would have to admit that uh, getting in another schedule 1 drug uh <laughs> and trying to develop it as a pharmaceutical uh would be a little more than I'm willing to take on at this point but certainly that was my interest uh back in that that day
0: so <clears throat> we we do not know specifically the mechanism that the psilocybin is performing to interrupt the the serotonin cycle Um, that causes the migraines. And so we know that this interruption is the thing we want because it, it acts as a prophylactic against migraines for some period of time. Now, with that being said, the two variables that, that seem to move a lot for folks is, um, the dosage and how long it works. Um, on the dosage side, we've got folks who are, um, you know, taking 0.1 gram, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 0.1 gram of, uh, of a psilocybin mushroom as a microdose, which they, they won't experience any of the intoxicating, um, effects, but it's in there, it's in the chemicals now in their bloodstream doing its magic. And so some people are getting benefits from that. But then you've got other people who, you know, did not, you know, don't get the interruption for long term until, you know, two or three milligrams, at which point, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, a very significant dosage of psilocybin where you are going to have, you know, euphoric and, you know, types of hallucinations very likely, you know, that's, that's an intense dose, but, but some people Find that they need to take that much to get, you know, a week or two off of migraines. And so people are asking me all the time, do I take a microdose? Do I have to take a heroic dose? How long should I expect it to last? And, and all I can do is repeat other anecdotal information that I received from other patients. So uh-huh. I'd love to hear what you have to say about those two variables about the dose and how long it works for you.
1: Well, again, I think this is really going to depend on the individual, and so the best advice is to uh start with a very low dose and see what's necessary um Not everyone um can take time off of work uh, and deal with the uh the implications of a heroic dose of a psychedelic um and hopefully it would be the case that, that less is adequate. But I, I mean the kinds of things you were mentioning seem to make sense. Um and it depends on the, the type of psilocybe mushroom that's involved. Um certainly with the high potency ones like psilocybe azorescence, um I'm trying to think. Um four mushrooms would likely represent something like 10 milligrams uh, of psilocybin. Um, It may be that less would be adequate uh, for prevention of headaches. Uh, 10 milligrams, people uh, hopefully are, it's going to be subthreshold for overt psychedelic effects. Uh, 20 milligrams, um, certainly uh, a good number of people are going to be affected in that way. And higher than that, it's quite likely um that it's gonna be a more full blown experience, which again may or may be more than people bargained for. Um it is in- important that we state at this time that these are still illegal. Uh we're talking theoretically here. Um things may change and it depends on the jurisdiction. Uh, Certainly, there are ballot initiatives to liberalize um, the situation in some jurisdictions, but uh, these substances remain federally illegal.
0: So um, in in determining dosage, you know, in, in common parlance, when patients are talking to patients, most folks are using weight measurements of the entire mushroom. And of course, That is kind of a misnomer, right? Because um, you can have the same species of mushroom have different potency based on how it was grown. And then you've got different species of mushrooms that all have got psilocybin um, that have got different um, potency because of the species that they are. So to say, ah – you know, I'm taking this much of a psilocybin mushroom, you try it. There, there's actually, you know, your mileage may vary there. Um, yes. So so that's an important warning just to make sure we mention. But where I'm going with this is, you know, some more advanced um, mycologist chemists, um, you know, they are uh, using uh, natural extraction techniques to have the psilocybin and... Um, and, uh, oh, it's, uh, the other component, psilocybin, and it sounds just like psilocybin. Anyway. Uh, the, psilocin. Thank you. Psilocin. Thank you. So, so they are uh, causing, they're putting the mushrooms in fluids that cause these chemicals to precipitate out in their crystalline form. Um, which uh, is wonderful for many folks because uh, some people have a, a a literal gut reaction to mushrooms, making their gut upset. And being able to have uh, crystal form psilocybin and psilocin, you know, you you're no longer taking the flesh of the mushroom, which has these other components that can give you a tummy ache or or diarrhea. So all of this is just set up this question of. You know, you and I have talked a great deal on Shaping Fire about the importance of whole plant cannabis medicine, where you need to use the entirety of the flower to get the best medical results. Does this apply also to mushrooms, where we should be taking the whole mushroom for entourage like results? Or is it really... Uh, no, actually, we're just trying to eat the mushroom to get the psilocybin and the psilocin. And if you can precipitate that out and take that pure, clearly you're going to have to change your dosage. But by all means, that's going to be a cleaner way to get access to the chemicals you're trying to ingest.
1: Yeah, there are pros and cons. Um, my bias would be that um, that more complete extracts are probably – more effective, but uh, I don't know that that's proven here. And in terms of absolute titration of dosage or knowing the dosage, uh, it's obviously easier to assess that uh, with a pure crystalline substance. Um, But as you mentioned, uh, psilocybin isn't the only game in town. There's psilocin in some species. There's baocysteine. Uh, and these are all psychedelic and may have similar activities. Um, so, uh, again, I can't point you to any established research that, um, uh, can specify, uh, major differences, but, um, I, I do, um, favor, uh, natural preparations where possible.
0: Um, as far as, uh, dosing for migraines, you know, there are a lot of i don't know there's there's a lot of teachers out there giving an array of different sorts of uh dosing protocols but you know most people tend to go to the paul stamets um dosing protocols and and you know they're not necessarily directed specifically for migraines, right? They're they're for general neurological health, um, and in some instances, cancer specifically if used with you know turkey mushrooms and other things. But in this case, we're talking about specifically migraines. Um, there is debate about oh, you're going to take this uh, small microdose of of point one gram of mushroom, you're going to take it once a day. You're going to take it every, every day, once a day. Some people are like, Oh no, you got need to take it every three days. So only two times a week. And there's a lot of variety on this. And, um, I suspect we're going to end up in a conversation like we did last set with cannabis where, you know, start with a little bit and increase, you know, from there. But is there anything that we want to be aware of about frequency of taking these microdoses. So so if we're going to start with a low dose anyway just for safety reasons, um are we going to be wanting to take this low dose, you know, uh uh daily, once a week? Like where's where's a good place to start? We can always move up, but we want to make sure that right. we've at least hit the threshold of efficacy.
1: Yeah, I think you've said it. Um in this instance, uh, I guess the best advice would be to try a low dose wait a week Um, if nothing happens um, then um, maybe that's adequate for a time Um, but um, you know I always subscribe to the philosophy that less is more if it's successful Um, and so if infrequent dosing is sufficient uh, to achieve the desired end then uh, that's terrific Um, In this instance, I would hope that daily administration isn't necessary the way that we've discussed in relation to cannabis as a migraine prophylactic, but uh, it's quite possible that it would be for some individuals. Uh, What we're looking for here is the hope that there will be some prolonged remission in relation to a certain frequency of dosing.
0: Um, so one of my favorite, um, you know, migraineur patients that I talk to, um, she takes this very seriously because her migraines are um, uh, absolutely debilitating, and um, she's the one who first started talking to me about the, you know, the how effective taking psilocybin mushrooms are for interrupting the serotonin cycle caused migraines. And, and so, you know, I, I listened with rapt attention and, and she went so far as to reach out to a mycologist who cultivates an array of uh, mushrooms. And, and so she, she got a package uh, from her that, that was was essentially seven different um, species of psilocybin rich mushrooms from different parts of the world, so that she could kind of you know taste test them and and try uh, low and medium sized doses of each to find out um, why some you know if some worked better for her migraine and would buy her more time. Um, my question for you is, is she definitely experienced uh, different um, lengths without migraines based on the different species. Do you think that that is related only to the different potency of the psilocybin in each of these species? Or do you think that each of the other species brings things to the table in addition to psilocybin? which may be helping uh, gain her relief from the migraines?
1: Well, either is possible. Um, You know, the reductionist is going to say, oh, it's all related to the uh, specific dosage of psilocybin. And that could be true, but I wouldn't rule out that there are synergies occurring in the different species.
0: Right on. That's interesting. All right. So, um, so let's talk, start talking about the interplay between, um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms and cannabis. So, you know, if our goal is the cessation of migraines or at the very least, the decreased likelihood of migraines, uh, the person with migraines is like, Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to start vaporizing, uh, flower in low doses occasionally to, uh, at first deal with the immediate onset of a migraine when when you can feel it you know on the on the in the shadows of your brain that you that it's coming on and then longer term they're going to use something like a tincture um how, should we expect any interplay between the cannabis and the psilocybin mushrooms
1: well certainly that's possible um you're dealing with two different drugs there's some overlap in effect in this specific instance um, the most obvious relationship is that many people use cannabis uh, in conjunction with psychedelics to reduce the associated <laughs> nausea uh, from the psychedelics. Uh, for a lot of people in the olden days, it was just a routine uh, to use cannabis in association with the psychedelics just to avoid the vomiting and nausea that uh, frequently can uh, be associated with them.
0: So what kind of dosage and what method of taking the cannabis would you uh, say would decrease the nausea most effectively?
1: Well, very low doses uh, would be necessary for that. It could be a single inhalation or something in the range of 2.5 milligrams of THC equivalent. In this instance, if it's just nausea we're talking about, it's possible that THCA, CBDA could also be effective. Um, But um, I don't have uh, uh, any anecdotes to go with that. It's just based on theory.
0: Right on. It's interesting because, you know, for folks who are using psilocybin mushrooms for their hallucinogenic qualities – Cannabis can help kind of loosen you up so that you're more open to, you know, sacred geometry and the ideas that people are taking mushrooms for. But if the, if the goal is not to trip, if the goal is to, you know, do brain maintenance, it's, it's really an entirely different category. So, um, you know, folks who are used to taking mushrooms and then taking a, you know, smoking a joint or some, you know, some more significant dosage of cannabis do note that, you know, that's, that's not necessary for this. You don't, you don't necessarily have to get high even though, you know, that might be part of a different kind of therapy of, of life enjoyment you may be doing. You know, one of the things that's frustrating for folks, Ethan, is that, um, you know, these, the- these therapies don't work for everybody. And, and also, which is sometimes even crueler um They work really well for a little while, and then they don't work anymore, and um, that frustrates the hell out of patients who are looking for relief. Can you speak to um, whatever facet of the human body's interaction with these chemicals um, that might explain why they may work for a little while and then not?
1: Not simply, but again, um, we're talking about migraine. It's a complex biochemical disorder of the brain. Uh, And again, it's multifactorial, particularly with respect to triggers. I am not ever satisfied to go with one thing. Um, And that's why I have always in my career harped on combining the lifestyle factors with any pharmaceutical or um, medical approaches. Um, you know, basically though, I can say this, that um, with cannabis treatment of migraine, particularly for prevention, um, it has been much, much less often that um, we see a, a failure over time. Uh, usually it's a persistent benefit and that's what was noted in the 19th century, and that's mainly been my experience in hearing from people all over the world about their experience using cannabis to treat migraine.
0: That makes sense. Um, I think I want to finish with this last thought. So – you know, while you are primarily a researcher and educator at this point, you have a long history of, of working in uh, the clinic with real patients. And as we all know, um, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, dealing with the research and actually trying to you know, interact with a patient who's, you know, suffering essentially. What would you say to a patient who is new to cannabis and new to mushrooms but suffers from terrible migraines? You know, the the patient is probably a bit unsure of the taboo of cannabis and is probably very aware of the taboo of an illegality of mushrooms. Um, but you know, pharmaceuticals have let them down by either not working or working a little bit with significant side effects, and so you know, as is common the case, you know, we don't usually hear from these types of patients until um, you know where are where their last possibility. Um, so so. You know, there are a lot of patients who are in this position, listening to us right now. Um, what kind of guidance or insight do you offer them to kind of get their heads straight about about you know trying these new options?
1: Sure. Well, sometimes radical problems require radical solutions, and uh, anybody who's uh, suffered with a full blown migraine um, is aware that uh, they'll try almost anything uh, to make this a less frequent uh, affliction uh, uh, fortunately we're facing a situation now in most jurisdictions that uh, there's been liberalization of attitudes and laws in relation to cannabis the same thing can happen with psychedelics I hope it does um, but again Either of these approaches with cannabis or with psychedelics, uh, when used properly, can be extremely safe and offer a kind of relief of migraine attacks that just hasn't been forthcoming from conventional approaches.
0: Right on. That's great. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for coming back to share your insight um that you've gained both through your research and from working with, you know, authentically um suffering patients. Um uh we appreciate it. and know your time is valuable, and uh I look forward to having you back again to talk about another important health issue.
1: My pleasure.
0: So if you want to uh, find out more about Dr. Russo's research and read some of his papers that are relevant to this topic, um, first of all, I recommend that you check out uh, this episode, number 65, on the Shaping Fire website at shapingfire.com. You can check out Dr. Russo's seminal paper, Clinical Endocannabinoid Deficiency Reconsidered. Current research supports theory in migraine, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, and other treatment-resistant syndromes. This paper is just fantastic. It explains um, why so many patients Patients who experience migraine also are experiencing irritable bowel and fibromyalgia, which, you know, for, if you're unfamiliar with it, think about it, like all body aching pain. So that, that link and a link to a couple others is on the shapingfire.com website. Also, I recommend that you check out the prior uh, Shaping Fire episodes with Dr. Russo. That's episode 11 and uh, episode 27. The part, kind of part one and part two, looking at cannabis um, terpenoids and cannabinoids in detail. Uh, We go through his uh, two popular papers on the topic pretty much line by line. And then also episode 22, where we discuss uh, TBI and brain injury and uh, treating that with uh, cannabis and mushrooms as well. If you have a burning question that you want to reach out to ask uh, Dr. Russo directly, you can do that at ethanrusso at comcast dot net, and you know be patient, right? You know Dr. Russo is a um, uh, is a busy cannabis researcher. And, um, you know, he, he tries to get back to everybody, but it may take, you know, a little bit for him to have the opportunity to get back to you. So, so be kind and patient, but you can reach him there. And then if you're interested in the uh, business science and research side of Dr. Russo, you can check out his new business, uh, Credo Science, uh, and that's at credo-science.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you'll also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.